The digital skills agenda shapes as a crucial economic, business and social issue, affecting productivity, the customer fulfilment, adaptability and efficiency of business, and major restructurings happening through our communities in how we work and engage. That's our topic for episode six of NAB Digital Next. I'm Brad Carr of NAB's digital data and analytics team, and I'm pleased to welcome Saga Goel. Saga is a partner at BCG in Singapore at the heart of some very innovative programs that BCG has instigated with the Singapore government and universities and business. And Saga also doubles as a fellow at the BCG Henderson Institute, which is BCG's global think tank, bringing a very much a worldwide perspective to this topic. We'll hear from Saga and then my NAB colleague Anna Camarota will join us to add her thoughts, connecting Saga's observations to what we see here in the Australian market. Firstly, Saga, thank you for joining us and welcome to NAB Digital Next. Thank you, Brad, for inviting me. I'm incredibly excited about our discussion today. This is one of my personal passion and purpose areas, so I am truly energized by this conversation. There is a global focus on the shortage of digital skills. We've seen it highlighted in the US. We see it here in Australia. I heard an African bank CEO during that Singapore FinTech Festival bemoan the drain of digital skills from their market to others. As you look across, I think, 80 plus markets in your role with BCG Henderson, what stands out for you in this space? It's a great question to start with, Brad. I think for me, what truly struck me was the scale and the scope of the problem that we are dealing with. Let's put this into perspective. If you think of the world's working population as a village of 100, about 45 of the 100 need to upskill to be relevant in their jobs today. And about five people are at the risk of their jobs being completely displaced. So those are the folks who need to reskill. So we talk about 50% of the working population needing to upskill or reskill. The most staggering insights are when you fast forward to 2030, that 50% becomes 90%. And about 30% of the workforce will see their jobs being completely displaced or reconfigured. And those folks will require complete reskilling to transition into new job roles. So we're looking at a massive shift and a massive scale problem and what I call a human skills crisis in the waiting. What was even more staggering as we looked at the data across digital and tech is the rate at which skills are getting redundant. So in general, the half-life of skills today is about five years. But for digital and tech talent, Brad, that's anywhere between 12 months to 18 months. So in 12 to 18 months, half of your skills become redundant. That's the speed at which things are changing. Now, clearly, as we said, this is a huge problem changing at a very rapid speed. But what was finally for me most insightful was there's a lot of progress that has been made just in the last couple of years. So we studied 85 different skilling ecosystems, Brad, globally. Skilling ecosystems are programs where government, industry, academia have come together to solve this problem at scale with impact. And we see about half of those just being launched in the last couple of years. So there's a clear indication that governments, industry, academia are rising to this huge challenge ahead of us. And uh, we have a way forward to solve the human skills crisis, as I call it. So before we we pivot to talk about some of those emerging solutions, I I do want to underscore and and drill into the challenge and the magnitude of the problem that you're alluding to. 
Uh, and I think you know that there is a really substantive, broader social and, and societal issue around the the need for workers to retrain. And and I think you've really cut here to the point about how we need to retrain mature workers. And I think this is probably one of the really crucial digital and economic and labour market issues of this decade, that we have these skilled surpluses and skills deficits scattered across different parts of the economy, increasingly with the deficit being at the digital end. And in trying to address this mismatch, there's a lot of very considerable challenges that mature workers face in trying to make that sort of transition, particularly at a stage of their life when they might have family commitments, financial commitments. It makes for an incredibly courageous leap for the individual to to redirect or or course correct in, in that sort of environment. And I'd love to get your thoughts on on how you see the challenges for that cohort of experienced workers and how we can look to help this group of people. At the heart of digital skill building, Brad, is basically a fundamental mindset shift. We're talking about an ability to look at new ways to solve old and existing problems, the ability not of not competing but cooperating, that of putting customers and employees at the center of all decision making. And even things around flipping the traditional hierarchical organization pyramid. Now, the real challenge is these are the very things that for many of our mature professionals or mid-careerists, as I call them, were things that made them successful in the past. So a big shift for mid-careerists is really thinking about how to change their mindset to build the right skill set. And what I call being comfortable with being discomfortable. So not an easy job by any means. But if I could share three things or three areas where we could support the mature learners to continuously to continuously upskill and reskill. The first in my mind would be helping them being much more self-aware. This is all starting from within. What are truly your strengths and your blind spots? And not just start to learn digital for the sake of digital but what truly is your career pivot that's going to be meaningful. This involves a lot of education about what is even the changes in the job role and also things around what might be the right pivot. And can we get our mid-careers to take a pause before they pivot to really think about where they want to move ahead based on that strengths and blind spots. So that's the first thing. The second thing for me is really showing them the art of possible to build both their confidence and conviction. You said in your own words that this is going to be incredibly difficult to make these career transition and shifts. What we need to showcase is this is possible through real examples and stories. For me, over the past two years, I've been so fortunate to be part of a life of some of these individuals, mid-careerists, even 50-year-olds who are learning how to code. And it's so inspiring to see that they have the lifelong learning mindset and it clearly rubs into the other colleagues and professionals. So the second point I have is how do we inspire them and help them build their confidence and conviction that this is indeed possible? And finally, we need to create an enabling ecosystem. This has, or rather this entails a role for all different ecosystem stakeholders. It's the government, the industry, the academia, and the individuals. Let me start from the individuals. Now, each of us, we think about savings for our healthcare, uh, for our finances. Do we really think about monthly savings for our skills? Well, maybe that's something for us to consider. 
for governments clearly this is a huge social agenda and it's almost a case of market failure so they need to step in to catalyze this entire movement for industries and i would love to talk more about that this is really creating that right enabling ecosystem the role modeling from the senior leaders the support from the hr the work study programs the carving out time for making learning happen versus learning uh, just from workshops or trainings where we all know is not very effective today so in summary brad this is about helping build more self awareness for mature learners helping build their confidence and conviction that and showing them this is possible through real examples and finally bringing that right enabling ecosystem for them so i think there's a bit of a parallel if i can draw one you've talked there about making them more self-aware, helping to show the art of the possible and the confidence and the life lifelong learning mindset. But there is also, you know, I think probably that harder side from the ecosystem that you talk about and ensuring that there are the tangible opportunities and I think probably the funding model that is actually helping to enable that. And you're right that it's a market failure, I think, that, that uh, has therefore been one of the areas where governments in some places have seen the need to step in. Of course, your market in Singapore is one of those, and uh, and BCG and the Singapore government have collaborated on the Rise program to help create some of these opportunities and make it more accessible for mature workers to retrain. Can you tell us a bit about that program? Absolutely. As part of BCG's commitment, Brad, to the broad workforce enablement globally, we partnered with the Singapore government late 2020 to launch a national-level digital reskilling initiative called Rise. RISE stands for Rapid and Immersive Skill Enhancement. At the heart of it is unemployed mid-career professionals who are in traditional declining roles and supporting them through a six-month intensive, very practical and hands-on learning program delivered by DCG experts and practitioners to help them pivot into in-demand digital and tech roles such as data analytics, digital sales and marketing, and digital transformation. This program really takes an individual across many of the elements, Brad, that we just spoke about. But if I may highlight three things, the first is the skill building. And this is helping them build a T-shaped skills profile. So not just the vertical specialization, i.e. somebody learning how to build a machine learning model, how to use Power BI, and some of those tech tools, but really the horizontal of the T. This is the hard and soft skills, which are foundation. How do you problem solve in a complex environment? How do you work in an agile way? How do you connect the dots? So the creativity and the innovation aspects, those are equal skills or rather skills we focus equally in terms of the time that we spend through the program. The second is really the leadership development aspect of it. We alluded to the self-awareness, helping the mid-careerists think through their strengths and blind spots. We have a very structured way to do this in the RISE program. And finally, the third journey, if I may, or the third strand of this three helical DNA that we talk about is the career journey. And this is really helping them with the career skills around uh, how do you showcase your profile in a light that is receptive to what the market requires build your interviewing skills, your networking skills. We all know most of the jobs out there, especially for folks with great experience in the backgrounds, is through the right uh, set of 
networking and finding your passion areas and your connections. So through the RISE program, we help them through their skill building journey, their leadership development journey, and their career development journey. It's been, for me personally, a very, very rewarding and fulfilling journey where we've had about 1,700 learners go through the program in the first phase with incredible placement support. So we had 75% of them get jobs through this program, which is more than two to three times higher than other programs that we've run in Singapore in the past. And I feel it's the combination of creating that ecosystem where we created a program which was industry relevant. We actually got industry to participate in the program itself. So as part of the career journey, we don't wait for talent acquisition friends and career fairs right at the end of the program. We bring the industry into the program, Brad, by organizing hackathons and capstones and many of the learners who otherwise would have not even been, or their CVs would have not even been seen by these corporates who eventually hired them, they got a chance to showcase their skills in action through such projects. And that's how we were able to scale this program. So I'm glad you bring in the point of, of what industry can contribute and, and bring to that. And I think this is a, a really important question I have and perhaps wanting to draw on, on some of what you've seen across the rest of the world also. Because while Singapore has been, I think, extremely visionary in its willingness as a government to invest in the future economy and, and help enable programs like RISE, it's it's a much greater challenge in a lot of other jurisdictions around the world where you know, maybe governments are a bit more fiscally challenged uh, or it's not palatable to make such far-reaching investments, perhaps. So what are some of the other ways that the private sector can contribute? And, and you've given you know a couple of examples there, but you know as you look across the world, where would you like to see the private sector do more? I personally think the private sector, the industry, has a huge role to play in solving the human skills crisis. This is not just governments and gov rather, this is not just governments catalyzing this movement, but industry really precipitating and driving action from this. There are many things that we can get corporates to start acting on, but maybe I can share a couple of examples. The first is really their workforce. And uh, that's for good reason. PCG research shows that digital transformations are successful when you over-index on capability build and change management muscle for organizations. So rather 70% of the value or the success for digital transformation comes from capability building. But unfortunately, that's heavily underinvested today. So if something that corporates can do, which is an easy win, is start by getting their own digital transformations to be successful by investing in their workforce. The second area I would say is thinking about the workforce, the currently employed workforce, but vulnerably so, at risk, whose jobs may be displaced in the near to midterm. An easy opportunity would be, you know, can we look at maybe retrenching or transitioning these folks for whatever reason, they don't have the right skills, we don't have the right positions for them. That's a very easy trade-off. But our research shows, Brad, that for many specific role transitions, there's a clear business case for organizations to not fire and hire, but rather retrain and reposition and redeploy within the organizations. And the third area I see, which is a bit forward-looking uh, from my perspective and the research that's emerging is, can companies think of starting to hire from non-traditional pools of talent? Typically, corporates hire right at the end, which is they're looking for finished products that 
80, 90% match to their job description. How about going upstream, Brad? Hiring with 20, 30% match through many of the ecosystem examples that we've seen globally, like the likes of uh, Year Up, Apprenti, 42 in Europe. These are non-traditional skilling ecosystems. For instance, in Year Up, which focuses on the Black community and helps to retrain and reposition and retool them. We have many leading corporations hiring from such a skilling ecosystem. And they wouldn't have access to this kind of talent from any of their traditional pools. And there is, again, Brad, a clear business case to do this. Uh, there are many other formats. You know, you can first place the individual and then train them as a company. Or, you know, they can go through a training through such a skilling ecosystem and the company can take them. Or maybe even, you know, programs like apprenticeships or internships, which is try before you buy models. We see a lot of this happening and it's about time that organizations and HR look at these non-traditional pool as well. And Sagar, if I could perhaps build on that a little, uh, I think the point you make about apprenticeships is a really important one and, and whether it's an opportunity to perhaps guarantee some placements to help provide a greater degree of surety for the people that are needing to make that leap out of an existing career in, into a training cycle and, and cohort that may may possibly lead somewhere, perhaps to, to give a, a greater sense of certainty. In finance, um, financial services, do we need to think a bit about how we, we help to fund this transition in the same way that we talk about the journey of sustainability and, and greening the economy and we talk about helping to fund the just transition of the economy? This is another major transition that the economy is going to need to go through. And, and do we need to think about the role that, that we might play in, in helping to fund that transition or restructuring? My research shows that this doesn't need to be completely philanthropic, Brad, where governments, large corporations or NGOs are stepping in. Yes, we need them, but we need them for a catalyst role, what I call the upfront seed investment or the CapEx. But we are increasingly seeing good models out there where the operate, we are seeing good models out there where the OPEX or the running costs are completely self-sustaining because you have different models of chargeback and largely chargeback to the corporates who are hiring and benefiting from such retrained talent pool. Uh, this could be in the, uh, in the form of you know, pay per hire or a subscription model where you, know, you try out some learners that go through such ecosystem programs. And if you're hiring them, you pay back to that ecosystem. Or it could be also some amount of small copay component from the individual. This also helps put skin in the game for the individual who is going through such programs. So in a nutshell, it's a combination of that seed investment upfront that can come from philanthropy, it can come from government. But we need to think of self-sustaining models with clear business cases where the corporates who are hiring really put skin in the game. And maybe also in a small amount, the individual's who are benefiting from it at the end of the day. And this could be, you know, this, this could be coming in later, six months after they get their job and they have that financial security, for instance. I think another huge component, and we were having a discussion at length yesterday, is that of, of financing and microfinancing. Can we have more innovative models? And the edtech industry has been really uh, forward-looking with this, which is zero payment upfront 
and you get a job and you pay one year later, for instance. Uh, uh, maybe this is not for everyone and you know governments need to step in and corporates need to step in. But clearly indications of multiple financial models that this could be a proper business case to set up. Yeah, we, we need to be a bit innovative in how we think about some of the potential funding models. You open our eyes a bit here to the fact that there are some exciting opportunities that we can explore. And, and as you say, it, it's not purely philanthropic. It is uh, There is a, a genuine commercial imperative. I'd like to pivot a little bit for the remainder of our conversation, uh, Sagar. Um, we've talked primarily about workers, about the individuals um, in, a, in an employment kind of context. I want to talk a bit more about small businesses uh, and small, small and medium enterprises and the skills journey and skills acquisition that they're on. And for a lot of the, the SMEs, particularly with small staffs, they have limited resources. They're probably often in a sense of, of what seems like near constant firefighting. Um, I've had the privilege recently to visit a couple of, of NAB small business customers and overwhelmingly the, the big challenge I see they face is just that they're very time poor. And so, you know, I think for a lot of those businesses, there's a dual challenge of both funding and also time to be able to keep pace and acquire the transformative skills they need. I was wondering how you see the challenges for that sector. This is a very interesting topic, Brad, and close to my heart. I mean, you and I working at large organizations, sometimes this can be a blind spot for us because our worldview is we have corporate HR, we have L&D departments who curate exciting programs and learning journeys for all of us. And we have an opportunity to continuously upskill and reskill ourselves. But that's really not the case for majority of the population. In fact, the numbers are staggering, right? So in Singapore, for instance, 70% of the workforce is deployed by SMEs or the informal economy. In Australia, that number is 41%. So that's a significant proportion of the workforce who don't have access to such L&D interventions. On the flip side, data from BCG's Digital Acceleration Index, where every year we measure the state of the economy across large corporations and small corporations on how they're doing on digital maturity, is a bit insightful here. For instance, in the Singapore market, when we've done this, we saw that MNCs actually improved their maturity over the COVID period. But SMEs continue to remain stagnant. And about 65% of SMEs in Singapore are still what we call digital starters. So clearly, there's a huge room to cover here. Now, what's the challenge? What's the key barrier? I would say... In one simple word, the mindset. It's easy to be in that firefighting mode. And that's true. I mean, think of the life of an SME founder or a business professional in a small enterprise living in such an unpredictable world. They are firefighting every day. But I had this conversation with an SME owner last month where he said, yes, every day looks like firefighting. But what truly helped me is my team's helping me take a step back to say, are we taking some time out to think of what's coming a year from now, maybe two years from now? And that's what inspired him to start thinking about where is he going to make his next big bet, the next big investments, and what capabilities are missing. I must say it's not easy, even as I describe it. And surely this example of this SME owner who runs a food chain in Singapore is forward-looking. But the point I'm making is, as an SME owner, if we take a moment to step back and not just solve for today, 
But what is that one or two big bets we want to make for the next six months, the next 12, 18 months? And what capabilities are missing to drive that? I'm sure there's a huge opportunity to make a true difference. This won't drive just the survival and the ability to compete today, but we are talking about growth at the back of capability and skill building in next-gen frontiers for SMEs. I think also if I can link it to some of what you were describing earlier in perhaps the more corporate environment of the economy, in a lot of cases, they are small compact units where the staff are often like family. And, you know, you made the comment earlier, uh, Sagar, about, you know, the better options than hire, uh, than fire and hire. I think in a lot of these small businesses, there would be a an imperative that you're not wanting to replace staff with more readily skilled ones. You do want to bring the staff you have along the journey with you. Um, and so I think there's a, a great commonality there um, and one where, you know, we need to find ways to help give those SMEs that that help. If I can perhaps conclude by once again drawing on your experiences with BCG's partnership with the Singapore government, I know you've done other programs separate to the RISE one we discussed earlier. You've done other programs with SME founders. And I was wondering if you could tell tell us a little bit about what's been possible, what's been achieved there with, with helping those SME founders, either in training themselves or their staff across the digital transformation journey. Just last month, we launched a new program in Singapore, which is focused towards small and medium enterprises and helping them build their in-house talent to drive digital transformation. We all know for SMEs, it's really challenging to compete and actually attract such talent. So a huge imperative to really build your own talent, but don't have the wherewithal and the muscle and the commitment to make this happen. And that was really the heart of or rather the mission for this new program that we've launched which is called rise for business one of the key learnings brad which has been through this program is how do we help our sme founders make that mindset shift and a simple answer but yet a very powerful and effective one is lead where the dollars are or lead where the money is and that isn't helping them solve real business problem statements so it means for us as BCG designing such a program for SMEs to not make it, here's a boot camp or here's 50 hours of learning. Here's some cool set of videos. Let's hear from our best experts on these topics, but rather flipping that on its head to say, let's help you identify one or two clear business problems that you're working on. It could be about driving sales and growth. It could be about internationalization or it could be about productivity improvement. And we help them identify through the program a set of levers and through BCG mentorship and coaching, help them actually start their journey of implementation. And the wonderful thing that happens at the back of that is we are helping build the capabilities of the people who are part of this program. And we also help them evangelize this through the rest of the organization. So it's helping our SMEs by showing them the business value And through that process or through the value delivery process, we have the skill delivery process in a way. For me, this is really a turning point that I see as I speak to governments and large corporates around the world and even SMEs now through such programs. There's the clear intent to make a difference. I guess the need for all of us now is to start putting that into action. Let's all put the will behind the skill as I like to say it. 
Fantastic to hear there from Sagar on the global challenge and some quite dramatic economic restructuring as the world becomes more digital. With our local context in mind, I'm joined now by Anna Camaroso, NAB's Chief Information Officer for Personal Banking. Uh, Anna, welcome. And I know you've had a major focus on these issues, both for what the skills challenge means for NAB in our role in the wider Australian economy. I was really struck by the magnitude of the workforce changes that Sagar spoke of in particular with 30% of roles being displaced or reconfigured by the end of the decade. But what really stood out for you? Well, I think it's it's fair to say, Brad, and thank you for inviting me along today. Um, I think it's fair to say that that number is striking, and it is a number that has been familiar to us, to be fair, for a couple of years now, uh, particularly as we've discussed the impact of artificial intelligence and machine learning across the broader employment sector. So as a number... I think it continues to rise year on year, but it is a striking number. I think the other thing that really um, struck me, and and it is something that, um, you know, in the context of some of the work that we've been doing, but also in the role that we can play around educating uh, employers and employees more broadly, is that that idea of the lifelong learning mindset. I think as a as a capability and as a you know as something to strive for that idea that you never stop learning. You don't stop learning just because you finished your degree or you finished an apprenticeship. You need to actually continue to hone in the learning skills. I think that is definitely something that is uh, worth kind of, you know, honing in on. Lifelong learning, and I loved his catchphrase at the end there of putting the will behind the skill. Um, And as we think about some of these issues specifically for the Australian economy um, and with our NAB engagement in the community, where we think of what this means both for our customers in the individual or personal banking sector, but also for our small and medium enterprise customers. What are some of the challenges and also opportunities that you see? Well, I think it's, um, you know, it's not a surprise that COVID, the COVID pandemic particularly highlighted some of the gaps that we have in Australia around employment, the reliance that we had on immigration, Um, The fact that, you know, when people decided that as a result of COVID, they were going to change their careers, they were going to change where they worked, they were going to change how they worked, we were not prepared as businesses to deal with that change. Uh, And we struggled to find people and continued to struggle to find people. You saw it in airlines, you see it in hospitality, you see it in the technology sector. So I think for us, uh, particularly that impact within Australia, where We're a very large country, but we're a very small country when it comes to population and the reliance that we have on, you know, on external talent to our country is is super important. Um, So I think that is both an opportunity and and a highlight. I think the way that we work on how do we support immigration, the way that we work on how do we retrain uh, people between industries, particularly as we see that kind of industry growth happen, I think is a key kind of um, you know space for us, and if I think about technology specifically, um, you know I, you see that you would have seen some of the statistics that the Technology Council of Australia put out there. We need an additional 1.2 million IT workers by 2025. You know it is impossible to find those within our current industry. So what are we going to do about that? Well, there's a lot of opportunities about what we do, and it's probably a multifaceted range of solutions that are needed for that, that it's partly about training people as they're coming through universities and TAFE. It's partly about immigration and the skilled visas you mentioned, but probably 
those things themselves are not going to be enough to to close that 1.2 million gap. And that element we've talked about with Saga of, of retraining mature workers is going to be another really important part of the solution alongside those others. Um, and relating that lastly to our own tech and digital capabilities here at NAB, what do you see is most important in the, the skills and workforce agenda for us? Well, I think the, you know, two things. I think the first thing is about creating the right learning ecosystems. I think Sagur kind of mentioned that as well, but the the right learning ecosystems. And that means that you as an organisation need to be able to, one, partner with things, you know, with, with organisations like universities or apprenticeship groups or schools even, uh, you know, to start kind of really early on um, and create that, that flow of skills right through. Um, but also within organisations to have the type of learning environments that allow for you to retrain your own workforce. Um, one of the most successful things that we've done uh, within NAB most recently has been our cloud practitioner learning program, targeted specifically at our female employees because we've got such a huge gender imbalance uh, in technology, uh, you know, um, as it starts. Uh, we, you know, we plan to have about 150 people join us uh, on that program, 560 signed up. And that was from outside areas than technology, you know, people from our operations and our contact centre and our retail. So it shows you that there's actually a thirst to, to transition and learn. Um, so if you've got the capability, people will come. Creating opportunities for people that do have that lifelong learning uh, mindset you talked about and as you said uh being able to bring people from so many different sources uh it's a it's a great story with those programs uh and i thank you and of course a big thank you also to our special guest Sagur goel of, B- of bcg um, looking ahead on nab digital next we're going to look at open banking with a comparative lens across both the uk and the, and the australian experiences and what that might mean for the future of the consumer data right we're also going to look at the ethical use and protection of consumer data So please join us again soon. I'm Brad Carr. Thanks for listening on Nab Digital Next.